Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. Welcome to it. I'm John Fugelsang. This is Tell Me Everything. So glad to have you with us for the next three hours. We're going to be making sense as best we can of the world as we found it. We have a lot of ground to cover and some terrific guests. Uh, Stephen Kent, who is the uh, creator of the Beltway's Bantha's Star Wars and Politics podcast. Uh, he also has a, a new book out called How the Force Can Fix the World, Lessons in Life, Liberty, and Happiness from a Galaxy Far, Far Away. It's May the 4th, so we want to do something to observe Star Wars Day. So right on. Rock on with you and all your Jawas. Uh, also, Professor Corey Brettschneider will be with us in the first Hour, along with Professor uh, Julie Souk, uh, continue our conversation from a couple of weeks ago about, well, women's rights, the ERA, and the current onslaught of the Supreme Court against women's reproductive freedoms, because that issue is never going away. I want to give you a couple quick reminders. Number one, Tomorrow night on the show, Smokey Robinson is with us. It's uh, finally the premiere of our interview with the legend. It's fantastic. Also, our 2020 conversation with the late, great Gordon Lightfoot we're bringing back to you uh, tomorrow night. Hope you can tune in. Also, there's going to be a big special by someone very close to our hearts. Our own producer, Thea Harper, is going to be uh, premiering a brand new special in the first hour tomorrow. But I'm going to let her tell you all about that later in tonight's show. And uh, if you're in Connecticut, come see me and Ophira Eisenberg tomorrow night at South Farms. That information is all over my social media stuff. Uh, what am I forgetting? Oh, yeah. Well, Chris. Chris is our producer. He's running everything out of South Carolina. We got a fun one today. I hope you had a very nice Star Wars day with all the family, Chris. I, I hope it went well and that, you know, you didn't you didn't uh, party just for the sake of partying, but that it was it was nice. I, I know that in D.C., Kevin McCarthy just apologized to the Sith for the Jedi's excessive regulations. That's how it's looking. So I think we're ready, right? We have a lot to get to on the show. It was a pretty busy day. Uh, e. Jean Carroll's case has been rested in her 
in her trial against Donald Trump, Donald Trump, it turns out, will not be testifying at all and will not be presenting any kind of defense at all. And I'm guessing if he loses, he will not be paying anything the court tells him he has to pay at all. But Eugene's lawyers have rested their case Four Proud Boys, including the former boss, Enrique Tario, were convicted of seditious conspiracy for their actions before and during the January 6th Capitol riot. Kids, I keep telling you this. If you hang out with Roger Stone, something creepy is going to happen. And and maybe it'll be something, you know, not that creepy and just something embarrassing later in life. Or maybe you'll go to freaking jail. Meanwhile, former Democratic rising star Andrew Gillum, who's been on trial for corruption, was found not guilty of lying to the FBI. And uh, we also found out that billionaire Republican donor Harlan Crow, who was already taking Clarence Thomas on lots of expensive vacations, lots of yacht trips, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts on Clarence Thomas and his wife. We found out that the billionaire right wing donor who has had cases before Clarence Thomas Supreme Court and Clarence never saw fit to declare any of the gifts he received. He bought Justice Thomas's mother's house (laughs) and she lives in it rent free. And today we found out that he has been spending $6,000 a month on private school tuition for a uh, Clarence Thomas's grandnephew who is in the justice's care. Clarence Thomas is raising this child and his sugar daddy is paying, again, $6,000 a month for the child to go to a private school. This man owns Clarence Thomas. This is corruption. It's happening right in front of us, and we have no way to stop it. And also, uh, the Donald Trump's MAGA Super PAC, his MAGA Incorporated Super PAC, has spent about $10 million on ads attacking Ron DeSantis since the end of March. $9.5 million they've spent on TV and radio ads savaging Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis is not even in the race. Okay, are we good? Let's get to it. I was 17, uh, and I was living in New York City. I helped teach a class at the NYU Catholic Center when I was very young, and I was still going to church every week. This is a catechumenate class for these two people, a man and a woman, who were converting to the Catholic faith. And the pastor of the Catholic Center, which was a really groovy church that did so much work with the homeless, that was down on Washington Square South, it was an iconic piece of architecture for many decades, the pastor asked me if I would do this. And I was like, I, I, I can't teach a class on how to convert to being Catholic, but I was 17, I knew a lot about the Bible, I'm like, all right, I'll try it, it was fine. I could tell that the guy converting was gay, but that was none of my business. I like this priest. His name was Father Raymond Rafferty, and he was cool. He had long hair, was graying. It was the 80s. He was a very progressive priest in Greenwich Village in the 80s at the height of the AIDS crisis. And this guy was welcoming gay people into church and celebrating them at a time when you could get fired for being gay in this country. So I I liked him, and I I said, yeah, I'll help you with your class. And one time we were talking about Jesus' favorite subject, the poor, and how when the poor manifest themselves in real life— It's not like how it is in the Bible or how it is in Dickens' books. It's often quite unexpected. Poverty's real face in the real world is often quite dramatically unpleasant. The Bible doesn't prepare us for it. And, and, and I said, look, I always try to be good. I was 17. I said, I always, I always try to be compassionate. I always, I, 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 every time I, if if any bum ever asks me, I always give him money. And (laughs) so um, Father Rafferty just said very calmly, didn't shame me. He just said, 
Please, I, I find it better and, and more effective to, to not use language like bums when we're talking about our homeless brothers and sisters. And he was right. I had never thought about it. He didn't shame me like, you know, a certain kind of liberal would. Uh, he didn't go pulling his woke card on me. He, he corrected me. I never thought I called them bums because that's what my grandfather from Flatbush had always called him. I, I didn't realize I was part of a culture of dehumanizing homeless people. But I was. I was raised that way. We all are. It's, it's how it is. We dehumanize the poor. We dehumanize homeless people. Society does it. The way society dehumanizes undocumented immigrants, calling them illegals. We just find names for them that take away the humanity. Bums. <laughs> oh, by the way, years later, I ran into that guy who converted. He had come out of the closet, and he was no longer Catholic, and he was totally happy. But, but the whole point is... <laughs> Society dehumanizes the homeless. Now, I've been riding the subway in New York City for over 35 years, and there were mentally ill homeless people on the train every night when I was a teenager. There are mentally ill homeless people on the train now. I have seen people singing and begging and screaming and panhandling. I've seen people praying, ranting and raving, sleeping one time, dead. I saw a dead, dead guy on the train once. I have never in my life seen anyone on a subway, homeless or high, crazy or drunk, whose behavior warranted being put into a headlock until they were dead. I've never seen it. And I've seen a lot of guys freaking out on the train. Anyone who's lived in New York has seen it. And you say, my God, why doesn't society do something about the homeless? Why can't we do something about the homeless? Europe does it better than us. We don't care. There's no money to be made in it. So we're all guilty, blah, blah, blah. This is not about that whole liberal guilt angle. By now, you know, a 30-year-old black man named Jordan Neely died on the F train in New York City on Tuesday. He was upset. He was screaming. He was in the midst of a mental health crisis. A witness, Juan Alberto Vasquez, told the New York Post that he had been screaming in an aggressive manner. He said he had no food. He had no drink that he was tired, and he doesn't care if he goes to jail. And then a young white guy came over and put him in a chokehold and held him in that chokehold for 15 minutes, and at the end, Jordan Neely was dead. That's pretty straightforward murder by any reasonable moral standard, isn't it? Um, Jordan Neely broke no laws. He was shouting. Uh, he never laid a finger on anyone, didn't assault anyone. He lost consciousness during the incident. The EMTs arrived to revive him, but they took him to the hospital. He was declared dead soon afterward. He lost his life being restrained by other passengers during a mental breakdown on the subway. He was yelling at passengers. They say he was using threatening language. We don't see that on the tape. And of course, there's a First Amendment case to be made. He didn't actually break any laws. And a 24-year-old Marine veteran put him in a chokehold. And two other guys restrained him, holding down his arms, pinning down his shoulders. The coroner has ruled it a homicide. So imagine my surprise, and then imagine how surprised I was that I can still get surprised, when our right-wing friends decided, here's their new cause. Here is something they can rally the troops about. Because you see, uh, the, the real victim here is the man who murdered the unarmed homeless man, the Marine, the white man who went up to a guy who hadn't broken any laws 
and killed him and got to leave. Was not charged and whose name is still being protected, even though the New York Post knows it. That is Rupert Murdoch's media empire. Rupert Murdoch knows his name. We're not allowed to yet. I want to play you Brian Kilmeade. Here's Brian Kilmeade on Fox News, and he's he's explaining why Jordan Neely was no innocent victim. I want you to listen to that, because he, he, Brian says, uh, when, you were in, when you're in that subway car, it's almost like you're in the octagon. But it turns out, if you start to feel sorry for Jordan Neely, you think maybe maybe he didn't deserve to be murdered, because this was ruled a homicide, okay? <laughs> he was he was put in a chokehold until he died. But it turns out uh, he was guilty of fair evasion. Give a listen to Brian. Even been in touch with this person, Brian. He's on the F train, 2.30 in the afternoon, should be fine. But you get on there and there's no cops around. And what happens often, you have a homeless guy, 30 years old. Now we find out he's got numerous prior arrests, uh, offenses including assault, disorderly conduct, uh, uh, beating, the killer didn't beat know. the fair. And he's also confronted law enforcement in the past. You don't know what's going on. He's sitting there seeing how this person is throwing garbage and berating. So evidently he is, uh, gets him in a chokehold, a submission hold, to control the person, not to beat him senseless, which he clearly could have done. 24 years old, Marine background. He decides there's nobody around. This guy's not going to get in control. I'm worried about the other passengers. Our own, uh, you know, what Adam, what happened with Adam Kotz. He saw somebody else being intimidated. He gets beat up. So this guy sits there. Then a couple of people held him down because he was still screaming. By the time they get off on Bleecker Street, uh, he's unconscious. And sadly, he passes away. That was in anybody's intention. But when you're in that subway car, it's almost like you're in the octagon. I mean, who's coming for you? You go in between stops. How many how many more victims do we need in in all these cities, especially in the subways in New York, uh, before something like this happens? When you right. let homeless run crazy, when you never arrest anyone, sooner or what? later, someone's going to take things into their own when hands. You... But clearly, that wasn't the attention. That is not the <laughs> attention of getting in a hold like that. That is to control the person. Well, OK, so, so I, I know this person. That's a lot of bullshit to digest in one quick sitting, and I apologize for shoving it down your throat. But fair evasion, really, Brian, that's a capital crime worthy of the death penalty now. They arrest plenty of homeless people, plenty of them. This man, Jordan Neely, was saying he didn't care if he went to jail. And I want to get to that in a second. But my God, do you hear this? This They have their new hero, this 24-year-old who committed homicide on an unarmed homeless man who had broken no laws. Brian's talking about victims. There's only one victim of one crime. One victim of one crime. And it's the dead black guy that they're all demonizing. And they're justifying this killing. They have their new Kyle Rittenhouse. They have their new George Zimmerman. They have their new dude who murdered a black person or murdered an undesirable to them. And it's acceptable. I mean, it's almost like they're auditioning for a new most godless satanic schmuck at Fox. Uh, Seth Weathers, right wing guy on Twitter. The dude who killed the violent subway bum better get his ass to Florida. Hope DeSantis will refuse to extradite him. It would be smart politics. <laughs> when I was hungry, you fed me. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk is liking tweets that refer to Jordan Neely as worthless and refer to other homeless people as worthless. Uh, Richard Hanania is another blue check mark in Elon's bold new hellscape. A guy gets arrested 40 times. How many people's lives has he made miserable? How often is someone arrested in a major city when making a disturbance? One out of 50 times? A hundred? It boggles the mind the extent to which we let a few worthless individuals ruin everything. That's a guy named Richard Hanania who has the eminence to decide which of us have worth 
and which of us don't? Now, apparently, the reports I've heard is that Jordan Neely's sister was murdered, and after that, it sent him into a deep depression, and he spiraled into schizophrenia. He was clearly mentally ill. He wasn't armed. He didn't lay a finger on anybody. He was making noise on the train. He was having a fit. And a guy killed him. Homicide. And they're putting the victim on trial. Elon Musk is liking that tweet. He's liking tweets by people justifying a murder on a train. And then there's Matt Walsh, our good friend. Matt tweeted, we have our new George Floyd, a psychotic, violent bum with 40 arrests who assaulted, harassed and threatened innocent people for years until someone finally had enough of it. Now they'll turn the bum into a martyr because his death is useful to their political agenda. No, Matty, no. It's, It's great that you can shit on Jesus while still calling for theocracy. I respect your dexterity on that one. But no, first off, psychotic, violent bum. I'm done with these people claiming they're Christian. 40 arrests, but the murderer didn't know that. Assaulted, harassed, threatened innocent people. Yeah, he was sick, but he wasn't doing any of that. He was screaming on the train. He was having a fit and someone had enough of it. The the guy who murdered Jordan Neely didn't know about his fair evasions, didn't know he'd been arrested 40 times. It was a homicide. That's not my opinion. Neely would be alive right now, except he is dead because of homicide, because a white man killed him. The left has their new George Floyd. Do you hear this in the right-wing Christians? They're always pro-life, aren't they? They're always pro-life. Except when an unarmed black guy had to die for some reason. They are the few, the proud. They are the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Bishop Talbert Swan, who's done this show, pointed out Connor Sturgeon, the Kentucky bank shooter, the guy who killed all those folks in the bank two months. I know. Can you remember that far back? It was like six mass shootings ago. A white man murdered five people, and the media talked about how he was a basketball star. He suffered concussions. He was a banker. All these were quotes about all-American, middle-class, popular, smart, college graduate. Jordan Neely, who was black, was murdered, and all the media talks about are his prior arrests. People are angry. They're protesting all over the city. And they're also angry at the lack of action by authorities. It's been three days. This man was choked to death, ruled a homicide. The law enforcement are saying they're still collecting evidence. They put out a statement today, and the NYPD said their first priority is to always seek justice. They urge anyone who has any information about Jordan Neely's death to come forward. NYPD detectives are actively reviewing footage and all other available information, the statement read. They say there's a rigorous, ongoing investigation. Um, There's plans to review the medical examiner's report, assess all available video and photo footage. Again, the man who murdered him, 24-year-old ex-Marine, still has not been publicly identified, and he was not detained at all after being questioned by police. But, you know, maybe, here's the thing, when Jordan Neely was having his fit on the train, maybe he was telling the truth. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I don't care if I go to jail. I mean, plenty of people who are homeless have learned they'll take jail over the streets. They'll take jail over the shelter system. And... I don't think anybody who's ever read anything about poverty would be surprised to learn that a person who has no home is hungry and thirsty. The dehumanization of the homeless is leading our right-wing brothers and sisters to justify murder. It's disgusting, it's disturbing, and it shows the depravity of these conservatives who would call this murderer a hero. Because here's the deal, friends. Let's just say in the midst of being choked by someone, Jordan Neely pulled out his Glock 9 and defended himself and stood his ground and exercised his Second Amendment rights and shot the man choking him. 
how, how do you how do you think Matt Walsh should be talking then? How do you think Brian Kilmeade and the right wingers would be talking if he had stood his ground and exercised his Second Amendment rights? Um, we shouldn't have to say this, but uh, killing someone who is not threatening you is illegal. Killing someone who is threatening you is immoral. We can't condone murdering other people, <laughs> especially if we're going to brag that we're pro-life. And look, you're either on the side of people who want a society that makes the choice to get health care for mentally ill and homeless people, to get them off the streets, get them the help they need. If you're fighting for single payer, you're fighting for mental health care for all. For months here in the city, we've been subjected to this constant right-wing nonsense from our mayor about how crime is out of control. Sure, there's crime here. It's not as bad as other cities. There's always too much crime. Crime's a symptom. Crime's a symptom of poverty. Crime's a symptom of things being fucked up. And we accept it. We know how it is. We want it to get better. But we're hearing nonstop these right-wing talking points from our mayor serving on an outpatient basis about how crime is out of control. And then suddenly... A white guy executes a black man in public, and all of these, all of these right-wing people are talking about how the victim is the threat, and the murderer was the victim. Jordan Neely's murder is not complicated, okay? Deadly force in defense of somebody else only works when the aggressor is using deadly force. No one's claiming Neely was using deadly force. Open and shut. There's one crime in the video. There's one victim. The black victim is dead, and the white murderer was allowed to go home. So we'll see how it plays out. We'll see how much the right wing wants to defend this guy. And will they defend this guy the way they defended Kyle Rittenhouse for his killings? Will they defend this guy the way they defended George Zimmerman for his? I don't know. They'll tell us all the drugs that Jordan Neely was on. They'll tell us all these different bad things he's done. We'll see videos of him playing Michael Jackson like an angel. We'll see videos of him ranting and raving like a demon. He was still a soul. Being homeless and being mentally ill should not be a death sentence. Jordan Neely did not deserve to be choked to death on a train. He deserved care. Every American deserves care. We want to know what's on your mind tonight. We're at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Let me go to Marie in Atlanta. Hi, Marie. Welcome. Great to have you. Hey, John. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Um, I had called about something else, but I will quickly comment about Jordan Neely. Um, I, in in my prosecutor days, you know, back then, I didn't believe that there were homeless people who would prefer to be in jail than to be homeless yeah. um, until I was in court one day. And it was a petty, like, public urination charge. Um, and this, the defendant said, the judge sentenced him to, like, five days in the city lockup. And I remember the guy said, Judge, can I stay until Sunday? Because Sunday dinner in the jail is really good. Oh. And the judge just kind of looked around like, uh, okay. So, and I, and I remember standing there thinking, wow, you know, that really says something when one looks forward to and would prefer to be in jail an extra day so they can... That's as much as that man was allowed to hope. To. That was exactly. as much as he was allowed to hope for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I called about uh, was with regard to Clarence Thomas. Um, Please. <laughs> So uh, the Orlando Sentinel um, has a report. I, I went back and dug it out um, because I'm I'm aware of the nephew who is the problematic one that's serving time in prison. 
Um, right. He was arrested. Orlando Sentinel had a report of him having been arrested in a, a drug sting operation in Georgia in 1992. I think there was another arrest in 1995, somewhere in that zone. And, and I do recall that at the time, um, the press was reporting that he, on his arrest, said, Clarence Thomas is my uncle. Uh-huh. Um, did not go over well. <laughs> did not get him any favor from what I could tell about what happened to him. Um, but yeah, the, I, I suspect that there was a certain amount of getting this, getting the, the nephew, the grandnephew, sort of out of the public view, uh, because right. if that kid was going to get in a bunch of trouble the way that you keep the justice from being a problem for the people he's supposed to serve, i.e. Harlan Crow, mm-hmm. um, is that you get the problem child out of view. You put them in a boarding school, all of that. Like immediately right. when I heard the story, I was like, oh yeah, okay, that makes perfect sense. Now that said, um, and I'm, I'm not saying anything about what has been reported about Clarence Thomas says anything good about him. It does not. But I do want to caution that, you know, I mean, there's there's evidence of other judges or there's indications of other justices on the court having some rather messy relationships. We know sure. about uh, Robert's wife. We know about Alito's yeah. whatever's going on with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, would, we, we, say, we have a lot of questions about about who's helping out Brett Kavanaugh so much with his various exactly, debts here and there. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I would just caution that we'd be be a little bit careful about focusing too much on Thomas, um, because there is a racial element to this that I, I, I'm worried that we're going to hit that trip wire. Um, black attorneys get disbarred at twice the rates of white attorneys for the same behavior. Right. So I believe it. white attorney breaks the, the ethics laws. They might get suspended. They might get censured. But the rates at which black attorneys get disbarred, well, get their licenses taken from them. Marie, that's a great point. Of, yeah. So I just that's want to be point. a little careful. And, and, and on the other hand, what that does do is it makes me that much more angry at Clarence Thomas because it's like, dude, we can't afford this. Black <laughs> attorneys cannot afford to have a black attorney, particularly mm. a justice of the Supreme Court, screwing up. And you know how much Clarence Thomas cares about young black attorneys, right? You know how much he cares oh, about yeah. about giving back to the community so that produced much. him. Yeah, Marie, I got to run, but let's just let's just go to the break. Imagining if Sonia Sotomayor took hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts and yacht trips, and let her mom's house be bought, and her mom lives there rent free, and let her kid she's raising go to six thousand dollar a month private school, all funded by George Soros. We just can only imagine how hard Hannity would defend it. Thank you so much for your call. We gotta hit a break. We'll be back in just a moment with Professor Corey Brechneider, and I'm so thrilled to welcome back uh, Professor Julie Souk. This is Sirius XM Progress, back in two. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. And welcome back. It's always uh, very special and rare when we have an interview that's so dynamite that uh, I'm just crushed there's not enough time and I beg our guests to come back for a part two. Every now and then we're lucky and they say yes. Um, Just as racism is embedded in our legal system historically, so is misogyny, even after the law proclaims gender equality and criminally punishes violence against women. Um, That's why I'm so thrilled that we have Professor Julie Souk back on the show. She is the author of After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It on Women's Struggles Towards Inclusive Constitutional Democracy Around the World. It's out now. And joining Julie Souk is the man who normally holds court here on Thursday evenings, Professor Corey Brechneider, who, of course, is the author of The Essential, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. You should also have your Penguin Liberty Series books by Corey on free speech, impeachment, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's notable cases. Professors Brechneider and Souk, welcome back. Uh, thanks, John. Pleasure to be here and pleasure to be with you, Julie. Thank you. It's pl- it's wonderful to be back on the show. It's it's horrible we have to discuss misogyny. It's horrible that anyone who invested in misogyny five years ago saw rich payoffs in the Trump years. Um, and obviously, as we see the war on women's reproductive rights continues to the level of banning um, mifepristone, the most popular abortion medication in the country, it seems like we're going to have to get used to the term just to bring our audience up to speed. Um, Professor Souk, how do you define misogyny? One of the things I loved about your work is that it's it's so much larger and embedded into the culture than just our quaint notions of woman hatred. Absolutely. So I think we need to get beyond seeing misogyny as limited to woman hatred, although it surely encompasses woman hatred and various forms of violence against women. But even outside of hatred, I trace that hatred to legal systems that uh, subordinated women, uh, assigned them to a position in which they actually had no legal rights, they couldn't vote or hold property or sue or be sued, uh, in part because that system, which we could just call patriarchy, was one that assumed that uh, women's role was to give reproductive labor, both biological in the form of pregnancy, as well as social in the form of child rearing and tending to the household. And that uh, expectation that women give that to society and to men uh, was part of the deal of women's exclusion from legal rights. And so as we transition out of patriarchy, the primary legal tool by which we've done that is through equal rights or the idea of equal protection uh, for women and men under the law. And uh, in doing that, however, 
uh, we never got rid of the expectation uh, that society benefits from women's sacrifices and forbearance so that children could be born and raised. Uh, We never got rid of that central expectation in patriarchy, even while declaring everyone to be equal. And so I think misogyny is that continuation of patriarchy, uh, but it's not a continuation that happens through the official legal rules of patriarchy. It's a continuation that happens through other legal rules that enforce those entitlements, even under conditions of legal equality. I mean, we're in a time when, when the state is forcing women to stay pregnant, not giving them the liberty to choose, but the state is also not reducing maternal mortality. The state's not providing paid maternity leave. The state's not providing health care and neonatal care. They're just calling this a culture of life by forced motherhood. Uh, As you've said, the legal and social expectations that women do more for everyone's benefit enforced by political and legal institutions controlled by anti-democratic men uh, on the Supreme Court. I mean, it is so much bigger than any of us can realize, and it's all been skillfully dressed up in the language of religious piety. Yeah, so it's the language of religious piety, but also, I think strangely, it's often dressed up in the language of choice as well, Mm -hmm. because I think certainly uh, rules that require women to stay pregnant, give them no choice, are often justified uh, because uh, women are thought to have made a choice to have sex, even though that too is not true in states that ban abortion with no exceptions uh, in the case of sexual assault and rape. Uh, But certainly, I think now very often when women find themselves unequal in outcome, the story that we tell is, well, uh, because women have equal choices, any um, unequal outcomes are a product of choice rather than a product of the legal order and the enforcement of patriarchal entitlements. I, I would like to ask my my fellow member of the patriarchy to to join in, Professor mm-hmm. Brett Schneider. I mean, Corey, I, I, I think it's fair to say government that fails to support caregiving is misogyny. I mean, it, it, it over entitles society to a woman's sacrifice in the name of some vague public good. Yeah, and one of the things that I'll highly recommend about Julie's book um, and and that we talked a little bit about last time, and by the way, there was a great uh, launch of the book uh, by Ms. Magazine, a great launch party and discussion. And what came out there and what comes out in the book is the idea that you can't really isolate out the abortion issue from the question of misogyny in the way that Julie talks about it, but also from the broader questions of uh, equality of women in the society. I mean, one thing I was going to ask you, Julie, to to talk about that I, I don't think we got to last time is, you know, there was another way to, to think about abortion from the beginning, which was the, the way I think preferred by Justice Ginsburg. She, of course, supported ab- abortion rights and, and voted to uphold them. But from the beginning, it was a, a litigator fighting uh, for really a different way of thinking about abortion through equal protection. So, I mean, of course, Dobbs is a tragedy, but I was wondering if you might say something about how her approach and the equal protection approach relate to mm-hmm. your to your thinking about abortion and, and really more generally misogyny in the book. Yeah, so one of the things that's shocking 
in the Dobbs, well, shocking but not surprising, I guess, mm -hmm. in the Dobbs opinion, is how the majority sort of brushes off the idea that banning abortion or restricting abortion violates women's right to equal protection of the laws. Uh, they sort of brush that off and say, of course, discriminating against pregnant people is not sex discrimination. Uh, mm. And they cite an old 1970s precedent uh, for that proposition. And they just kind of brush off without even naming. There was a feminist constitutional legal scholars brief by Reva Siegel and Serena Meyerie and Melissa Murray uh, making the equal protection argument. They just kind of brush that off and say, of course, there's no real equality argument uh, for protecting abortion rights. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, the cases that she was interested in and the case that almost got litigated, it just got ended up getting dismissed because it was rendered moot, was a case called Struck, in which a woman was actually fired from the military. She was in the Air Force and she was fired because she got pregnant and she was offered an abortion. Like abortion was illegal almost everywhere uh, in America, in many, most states, but on military bases. Uh, they were offered as a way of keeping your job uh, because it, it was not considered appropriate for a woman to, and she wasn't even intending to keep the child. Uh, and so this is where Ginsburg comes in and says uh, that uh, this kind of action against a pregnant person is sex discrimination. And it was a situation in which the woman actually didn't even want the abortion. She was going to be forced to have the abortion as a condition of keeping her job. And she didn't want the abortion for her own religious reasons. Okay. Uh, and Ginsburg saw very clearly uh, that telling someone that they could not be a mother, biological or social, in order to keep their job in the military, uh, that that was a problem. Uh, and it was a problem equal to telling someone uh, that they couldn't choose uh, whether to be a mother or not. Uh, but what that case brings out that a lot of our cases on abortion even before Dobbs did not bring out is this idea uh, that women are expected uh, to be mothers and being expected to be mothers is incompatible with being a full legal person uh, exactly. and a citizen, like someone who can serve in the military, um, have a job that uh, that men have. Uh, and, and I think this is really important now because uh, one of the problems in our society is that there's a complete lack of support for caregiving. Uh, in the 70s, there was a moment where we came this close to bipartisan legislation establishing childcare just across the board uh, all throughout the country, not based on need, not just Head Start programs for the people who are too poor to afford uh, childcare, just childcare as a universal uh, provision, uh, which is yes. very common in a lot of social democracies around the world. Uh, and this gets uh, vetoed by Nixon as ch child rearing is a private enterprise. Uh, it's something that parents do uh, in, in, in accordance with their own religious beliefs. And I think one of the things that happened in the United States because, uh, or I wouldn't say because of, but related to Roe v. Wade is the idea that a decision to have a child is totally private and we fail to recognize right. some of the public benefits that accrue from people being willing to bear children. Uh, that is, there's a whole generation of citizens, soldiers, voters, uh, people who contribute to the economy and to the life of society, as well as the culture of life, which you mentioned before, John. Uh, and so we have all of these collective benefits 
Uh, but there is one class of people, women, uh, people who have the capacity uh, to be pregnant, people who are impregnable. Uh, th th those are the ones who uh, bear uh, disproportionate burdens and often sacrifices uh, to their own control of their own destinies uh, in order for that public book good to be extracted. And so one of the, well, the things I want to do is to say maybe we made a mistake in um, this liberal idea of feminism around the idea of privacy and choice. Uh, maybe what we needed to do was focus more on the value that gets extracted from women uh, because uh, reproduction, like just having another generation, um, having future generations, having a nation uh, where people are born and raised, uh, that that's actually pretty fundamental to keeping society going. Uh, and we've just completely erased what are the things we need uh, that are difficult and costly uh, in order to keep things going. Uh, by uh, these uh, the arrangements, uh, first through patriarchy, but even under legal equality, by not supporting childcare, by not having paid maternity leave, by not having laws at the federal level. Until December, we didn't have laws that would allow a pregnant woman to carry a water bottle uh, in the workplace. She could get fired uh, for needing to drink water or go to the bathroom uh, in the workplace. Uh, and so these are the kinds of things which I think are as essential, perhaps even more essential to uh, overcoming misogyny than legally guaranteeing equality. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm with uh, Professor Corey Brett-Schneider and our special guest, Professor Julie Souk, who's the author of the wonderful, essential new book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. Julie, I'd love to ask you a question. There's a term you use that has haunted me for the past couple of weeks since the last time we discussed your book. Um, and it's kind of brilliant. And I've, I've, I've been unable to let go of this term. So much of your book is not so much about the... Um, empowerment of women, but it's actually about the systemic over-empowerment of men. And that phrase, male over-empowerment, has so stuck with me as a great way of explaining how the deck is rigged and we're all born into the same system. I'm wondering how historically and how elsewhere do constitutional democracies get past this institutionalized over-empowerment of one gender? So I think that's been very hard. And part of the reason uh, it's been very hard is uh, because we've so understood formal equality as just kind of um, letting things, like letting the market take care of things when in fact the market uh, sometimes ends up enforcing and perpetuating cultural expectations uh, that come from the previous legal order of patriarchy. But in many other societies, and just uh, on the childcare question, for example, um, one of the models that I look at is Sweden. And Sweden is a model that I'm not the only one. People often hold it up as a, like a gender equality paradise. Right. Uh, it is a country that pioneered this idea that both men and women, mothers and fathers, should have paid parental leave and that there should be incentives in the policies to encourage the parents to use it equally. Uh, so, so they have incentives, and this has become a model that's been copied by many continental European countries after Sweden. Uh, that say, like, if a when a child is born, uh, the parents get twelve months of paid parental leave that they could share. But if both parents take some form of it, then the the, the family gets fourteen months. So there's like an mm -hmm. extra bonus 
if uh, both parents are doing childcare. Uh, but what's interesting to about Sweden is that it's not really like until the 80s that they really focus on having anti-discrimination law or sex discrimination is not really the concept. Uh, what they do uh, in the 60s and 70s uh, is focus on figuring out how to govern. Uh, so the major constitutional transformation they get is not like an equal rights amendment, for example, or Ruth Bader Ginsburg's triumphs in gender equality, anti-discrimination litigation. What they get is a transformation of the bicameral legislature into a unicameral legislature and a lot of rules that try to make the legislature more representative. Uh, and uh, and then uh, it becomes possible to govern. They build, they mm. fund child care centers. They pass legislation on child care, care centers uh, and they uh, finance paid parental leave for both parents. That's huge. Uh, and if you just think institutionalized about equality, institutionalized right. equality. Absolutely. But you can't just institutionalize equality without having institutions that are capable of agreeing to govern. And that we actually don't have. You know, we got paid parental leave and, you know, a huge percentage of Americans support the notion of paid parental leave when we uh, sorry, we don't have paid parental leave. We have unpaid yeah, parental leave right. at the federal level. And that was a coalition of family values, conservatives uh, and progressives who cared about the rights of workers, uh, but what they could compromise on was unpaid parental leave. And everyone thought that was just the first incremental step towards getting paid parental leave. But 30 years later, we still don't have federal paid parental leave policy. Uh, and I think a lot of it comes back to just some of the dysfunctions that are baked into our governing institutions, yeah. uh, including Congress uh, and the state legislatures, uh, which have found numerous ways to entrench the incumbent power. Um, you see that in places like North Carolina, which has been in the spotlight for the ways that they have uh, drawn. Uh, they're one of the most gerrymandered states, both at the state leg legislature level and in Congress. Uh, and of course, just today, the big news out of North Carolina is that the Republican supermajority uh, voting on party line has adopted a pretty draconian 12-week uh, abortion ban and um, and now, it, even if the Democratic governor vetoes it, uh, they have the votes to override that veto. Over empowerment, uh, this, this is happening in places where people, uh, largely men who hold power, are finding ways to short circuit what you would think of as representative democratic rules uh, to keep themselves in power. We, we, we have to hit a break, but I'd love to ask one more question about the ERA. Would it be possible for the two of you to stay after our break? Sure. Okay, Chris, we'll hit the break right now. Don't go away. I do, because the last time you were here, Doctor, we discussed your book, We the Women, The Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, and it's amazing how it all comes together. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes on SiriusXM. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. 
Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back with Professor Corey Brechtdeiter and Professor Julie Souk. Corey, you wanted to ask a question about the ERA too. Yeah, uh, Julie has this uh, terrific and well-timed op-ed in the New York Times uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, about the ERA. And it really relates directly to this discussion, because I think when we talk about misogyny, certainly in the culture, uh, when we talk about the loss of rights of basic equality, um, uh, it's, you know, easy to, to feel despair, but Julie has a whole part of this book, especially when she's looking to other countries, uh, that really talk, and we were getting at this before, about um, democratic uh, action and mm-hmm. making a difference through lawmaking. And, w- and one of the ways we can make a difference in the United States is through uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. So, Julie, I just wanted to invite you to say something about uh, why you believe the ERA could and should make a difference and, and maybe something, too, about the procedural challenge of, of the We've deadline. we got about a minute left to do that as well. So we're going to have to okay. do a part three, but go ahead. Right. So I, I can't tell the whole story now, but one thing I will say is that it's because of the process. Uh, women have been trying to get into the Constitution for 100 years, and we have rules. And I think the fact that it's failed, something that most countries consider really basic, to a constitution like free speech or you know the ability to vote these are constitutional essentials equality between women and men uh, but that's pretty simple but the fact that our rules article 5 have made it this difficult and we're still fighting for it now um kind of illustrates the uh, problem of power and power entrenchment uh and non-democracy that is in our constitution and needs to change. And I think through the process of redefining what equality means over a hundred years, uh, I think this point has been made. And Thank so it's so not much. the words of the ERA, but- We, we gotta hit our break thought. now, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Julie Souk is the author of After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. Corey Brettschneider, thank you. Come back for part three, please. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Star Wars has always reflected our world, the politics, the spirituality, the culture. It's always been inclusive. Uh, It's always opposed to fascism. It's a 
series of films and TV shows about how authoritarian fear erodes democracy and how does a republic devolve into an empire? And how can fascism keep rising up and falling again when the people who take over tend to be incompetent bureaucrats asleep at the wheel? Andor is deep in the politics, Mandalorian's deep in the emotions, Book of Boba Fett deep in the redemption arc story. Star Wars is also about the soul. It's about choosing light over darkness, even when the dark side is the quick and easy path. And Ryan Johnson had one of the best quotes about the prequels. He said, George Lucas made a gorgeous seven-hour-long movie for children about how entitlement and fear of loss turns good people into fascists. And he did it while spearheading every technical sea change in modern filmmaking in the last 30 years. So Star Wars isn't going away. Disney's going to make sure of that. We're excited for season two of Star Wars Visions, the terrific anime series. And then Rosario Dawson, friend of the show, is going to be starring in Ahsoka later on. They just announced three new feature films. So I was so happy to hear about Stephen Kent and his book, How the Force can change, can fix the world. Lessons on life, liberty, and happiness from a galaxy far, far away. Stephen is the creator of the Beltway Bantha's Star Wars and Politics podcast. He's been a contributor to the Washington Examiner. You may have seen him in USA Today or Vanity Fair or the Daily Beast or Vox. What a pleasure to welcome the author of How the Force Can Fix the World, uh, Stephen Kent to SiriusXM. Hello. Good evening. May the Force be with you all. Thank you, and and also with you, as the Catholics say. I hope you had a uh, I hope you had a nice uh, May the Fourth well, for all those who celebrate. Uh, I would imagine you had a very busy day of media appearances. Yeah, people love to talk Star Wars, and politics is always on everyone's mind, and that's kind of what I do. Uh, politics is the day job, and Star Wars is what I really care about. Um, uh, I did get to cap it off with Star Wars Visions, which was nice. I, I sat down with my daughter for five or six episodes of the new Star Wars Visions anime series. And boy, is it beautiful. I can't wait. I'm a big fan. Uh, I, I love what they've done. And I'm excited to see the uh, the, the Ardman Studios uh, short for this one as well. You know, I, I, I find the book really fascinating because Star Wars is sort of like the Big Bang. Um, it keeps expanding and its influence keeps expanding. And, you know, the, the, the debates we have over the Book of Boba Fett, the debates people have over the, you know, Mandalorian season three, uh, the debates we have over what Andor was trying to say, it, it shows that it's not just financially a powerhouse, but that Disney has, for all this rancor and fights back and forth, managed to keep it incredibly socially relevant. You know, it's it's not a cliche when people say that Star Wars has become a modern mythology. It is part of why it is it is the subject of so much vicious debate and conversation. When people are tearing each other apart online uh, or in person about what they think about The Last Jedi and decisions mm -hmm. that were made in that movie by Ryan Johnson, a movie I think is objectively beautiful. Um, it is not a debate about the movie. <laughs> it's a right. debate about what it is saying, about yeah. who we are, where we come from, what, what is the point of tradition, uh, and what is the point of progress. Um, people kind of, I, I don't know if they, they believe that they're having a conversation about Star Wars, but it's more of an emotional reaction to what is going on underneath. And that's the power of these movies. But it certainly does say a lot about, you know, you and, and it says a lot about the speaker. I mean, how I'll learn a lot about somebody by what they think about Star Wars and what parts of Star Wars inspired them or made them feel angry. And and that goes on the spiritual side as well. I mean, for me as a kid, I, you know, I've had this theory for a long time that 
for boys of a certain generation, Star Wars sort of uh, connected it deeper than Christianity ever could. It, it, and it's kind of was a religion for a whole generation of boys in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, the, the, it's not that dissimilar from the story in the Bible. The, the, the father and the son dynamic of Anakin and Luke, the father is a lot more powerful. The son's a lot more likable. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, when Yoda came out and said, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. For me as a kid, that explained the human soul better than anything I ever learned in church. And I spent a lot of time in church. It's incredible that on politics, spirituality, and just culture, screenwriting, feminism. I've, that it's I've been spending the, the past year reading a lot of the, the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. And I, I remember highlighting in Marcus Aurelius's meditations a passage uh, in which he almost exactly delivers the luminous beings are we line mm. uh, about the spiritual nature of our existences and that we're just sort of uh, these beautiful creatures meant for the the stars that are trapped in these these little human shells and this flesh and this bone and then you kind of go straight to George Lucas and and why he was putting together this mythology and where he was cribbing it from and and of course he would have read this as a cultural anthropologist himself and That's lover right. of different different schools of philosophy uh, star wars or, is just or at least kasdan like or at least or maybe kasdan read it but yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely but you're right it is much more george brings in the the spirituality much more than kasdan did and i love all of kasdan's scripts um you know you 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 i mean the book is really all about how we live in this time of incredible change and chaos and democracies that are in decline and dictators that are getting more powerful I'm curious, was it the world around us that inspired you to write this book about Star Wars? Because, you know, like the Bible, it makes for a very powerful metaphor. I spent the years since 2016 when uh, when Trump became a thing trying to re-understand politics and political polarization. And I took a lifelong love of Star Wars uh, on the road, basically, to start talking to political figures, media people, uh, politicians. And try to understand why when I sat down with Republicans and Democrats and progressive activists and libertarian, you know, nut jobs and all of that, everybody who I talked to would talk about how they loved Star Wars and believed yeah. many of its moral claims. But then, of course, they they accept the moral claims of Star Wars, but then they practice very different lives, you know, just like many people do with their their religions. And so I wanted to understand in my podcast experience, you know, how is it that Cory Booker, who's more of a Trekkie himself, but Ted Cruz as well, both are very fluent in Star Wars. <laughs> they yeah. know a lot about it, but neither one of them see what it is saying the same way. Uh, that ended up kind of spinning out into a book around 2020. Uh, and of course, political polarization and me just trying to understand my friends and neighbors who I used to recognize based on their political affiliations that I don't recognize anymore. I know this book was kind of my way to understand them. I get that. I think, you know, sports and re- and, and religion and Star Wars, I think, are the three ways that we have a best chance of finding common ground, at least with men in this country. Uh, I've always said sports, whether you like sports or not, are probably the biggest reason we haven't had a second civil war. People who are, you know, encouraged to hate each other by the culture can be brothers at arms in a stadium. It's supposed to be that way with Christianity, but it really is that way with Star Wars. I've talked to people where I'm shocked they're fans because the series, Mm -hmm. especially the prequels, become so, so political. Do you find that Star Wars is 
a, a, a source of hope for you? Is it is it a source of hope or is it is it sort of, you know, in a way, a bit of a yin yang? If there's one thing we're learning now in all these different universes of Star Wars that keep coming up and the timeline keeps getting longer, we keep having this pattern of a republic that we don't take care of. It slides into fascism and then we defeat the fascists from the heroes, but the mm-hmm. bureaucrats are phoning it in again. I mean, I think the most recent season of Mandalorian did some really great job at showing how, okay, the good guys win, but that doesn't mean they can run an operation day to day. Yeah. My my mind kind of goes to, again, one of the, the stoic sayings, premeditatio morum, that you're supposed to meditate on evils. And to meditate on evils in the stoic sense is to... Uh, sort of anticipate bad things that can happen and anticipate an imperfect world and not be caught flat-footed by it. And Star Wars, more than anything in my life, taught me about the cycle uh, that Ryan Johnson very much described in that quote that you gave on the prequels that, you know, we sort of have these cycles of, of peace and liberal democracy and, and back, you know, backswings towards totalitarianism. We have periods of liberalism and then we have these periods of stricture. Uh, and this is just the way that the world works in Star Wars as well. It's just sort of a cycle. Um, and you have to I think understand that there is always going to be these cycles of change. The more that you try to stop those changes from happening, the more you put yourself on the path of the darkness and of becoming Darth Vader. Um, I know we all want good things to happen to people. We want freedom to reign. Uh, but the same people who often become the man in the black suit uh, can also claim that they once wanted those things. Exactly. They eventually convinced themselves, though, that a couple eggs needed to be cracked to save that omelet. <laughs> um, and uh, and we become the dark. Is there a character that that spoke the most powerfully to you while you were writing this book? I mean, it's it's it, it's one thing to talk about this stuff, but you've actually put paper to pen and devoted a lot of time to making Star Wars understandable in deeper ways. Are there are there particular characters that are your guiding light as a as a writer uh, and analyst of these sagas? You know, I've gotten closer to Padme Amidala over year over the years. Um, mm-hmm. First, uh, beginning with her reign as queen in Episode One, and then moving to be a senator in Episodes Two, humility and, and her openness to talking to people and dealing with uh, disagreement that she articulates in the prequel films. I just I just love, and when I think about a political person in Star Wars who navigates relationships well, I, I do think of her. Uh, I ended up opening up my book with an entire chapter on episode one and the way that she handled as a child queen in the invasion of Naboo uh, with mm-hmm. incredible humility. The scene in which she kneels before Boss Nass and the Gungans uh, and says that she needs their help, I never really realized it until I was writing this book, that that's the moment in which contempt and distrust gets overcome by someone from another faction just saying, hey, I need your help. Boss Nast, right. you remember what he does? He laughs and he goes, you still, you still don't think you're greater than the Gungans? And mm-hmm. then you go, oh, that's what this was all about. This is like when uh, 
when conservatives in the country are like, oh, you know, the liberal city slickers, you know, they just think we're a bunch of bums or whatever. And, you know, and then the the liberals are all talking about how conservatives think they're all a bunch of inner inner city snobs. Um, yeah. They they believe that their opponents look down on them uh, and it breeds contempt. But Padme sure. knew how to overcome that. It's also the same story, though, of an oppressed minority of indigenous peoples who feel that it they're is, yeah. looked down on. And when she kneels before the people who live below the surface of the earth under the water as royalty, it's uh, you really know what George Lucas was doing there. And I mean, that's one of the things I think Disney's gotten right, you know, the way that they have um, taken the Tuscans from being these fearsome people with their own sand people slur and actually showed them to be indigenous tribes with traditions and dignity and love. They they keep on expanding it and going deeper into things that were just used for, you know, a fright half a century ago. It's really remarkable to see. I think one of the greatest advancements in Star Wars since Rogue One has been showing the fractiousness within the Rebel Alliance, or more so to show us that it was not always a Rebel Alliance. The very real reality that in 2016, Rogue One uh, was happening at the same time as the Democratic primary between Bernie Sanders uh, yeah. and Hillary Clinton. This was fresh on everybody's mind. And then we're introduced to the, I would say, much more uh, radical candidate in the rebellion, Saw Gerrera, depicted by Forrest Whitaker. Um, you know, just to see that the Rebel Alliance had choices to make in who they were going to follow and what tactics they were going to embrace. These are the choices that we have to make as political beings, as citizens, as activists. Um, what part of the movement do we really want to be part of? Because you do have to choose uh, and or double down on that in a, a wonderful way. Uh, tell me how so, because I, I agree and I, I love Andor and I love that it took people a while to discover it and they continue to. It's so much fun. People who didn't really know what Andor was when it first came out. It's certainly the first Star Wars product that's not at all for children. And it's mm -hmm. arguably the best piece of TV they've done. How, tell me what you got from it. Well, there's probably two things. Again, just on the political front with Mon Mothma, the person who will eventually become the leader of the Rebel Alliance when she gets the courage to walk yeah. away from her cushy penthouse on Coruscant and leave the Senate. You know, she really just sort of represents a neoliberal establishmentarian who really is obviously opposed to the fascist system on Coruscant, but she wants to make it work because yeah. she's also very comfortable. Uh, and then on the other end, you've got this guy, Luthen Real, uh, played by Skarsgård. And he is, um, I think, an aspiring martyr based on yeah. where we see him in Andor. He is walking away from his cushy and comfortable life. And he's sort of embracing the attitude of the political activist who, I don't know, I think has given up on living, um, lighting themselves on fire, if you will. Like he's, he's going to go down in flames and he's very content with it. I think it's tempting to... Um, make them look better than that than they are sometimes you know like the people yeah. who've given up on building things because yeah. rebels they have a choice between just destroying things and building and mon mothma even though she's an establishment person she's a builder uh, which is why she ends up winning in the end 
Yeah, and it's really, really interesting for a character who shows up in one scene in Return of the Jedi, and then they cast the younger actor for episode three, and that scene is completely yeah, cut uh-huh. out. And after 15 years, she gets their chance to play the character again in this series, and of course, in other series to come. And and you're exactly right. She She's also, though, a great feminist story, because she's a, a, a bureaucrat, she's a secret revolutionary, she lives in incredible wealth, but deeply unhappy in an arranged marriage, because that's the culture of her home planet. And in the course of the show, she realizes that if she wants to get the help she needs for the rebellion, she's going to have to potentially let her own daughter enter into an arranged marriage like the one she was forced into. And the compromises as a feminist she's forced to face are nothing we could have guessed Star Wars would give us 30 years ago. Did you like that little touch there about her daughter being more of a traditionalist than she is? Yeah, her uh, that's, daughter is, that's winds up being conservative and, and thinks yeah. she should be in a, a, a arranged marriage. It was fascinating. Yeah, you know, we we all know people like that in our lives. Our kids rebel against us in their in their own ways. Um, and Mon Mothma is, you know, again, sort of like a feminist figure in Star Wars. Yeah, she kind of breeds a traditional conservative daughter and. You know, it is it is what it is. People yeah. walk their own paths for self-discovery and you just got to love them. But you can see just how much it hurt her. It was very painful for her to let her do that arranged marriage. What is what do you get from Star Wars in terms of both empathy and humility? Because I, I keep feeling those are two of the most traditional tenets of the Jedi that come through. My parents were always very fond of talking about all the, the parallels with the Gospel of Matthew. But um, what, what do we learn about the art of humility and the act of empathy from these films and TV shows. Well, you mentioned you can tell a lot of, about a person by their like their favorite scenes or favorite moments in Star Wars, and I know what mine is. I've always known what it is. I, when I went to film school, <laughs> uh, I was asked in front of my entire class about it, and I was really embarrassed to pick a Star Wars movie because all the film kids, you know, pick I don't know like Clockwork Orange or something right. weird. Um, but it was the end of Return of the Jedi. It's when Luke is being tortured by the Emperor and Vader is looking on uh, and watching this in silence. And you see the lightning flashing against his mask. And I imagine you can picture it right now. He looked so sad. Vader just kind of tilts his head to the side and is watching this. And you just see like his life flashing before his eyes, like every bad mm-hmm. choice that he made. And I just found it remarkable, even when I was very young, that you could project sadness through a mask that has not changed one bit from the previous scene. It's the same face. That's right. But you can you can see the pain and the agony, uh, at least I can. And masks are like that. We all wear masks in our day-to-day lives, whether it's the smile we wear at work, whether it's the avatar that we put on our LinkedIn that makes us look more accomplished than we are. Um, you know, or just our attitude that we put off with our parents, you know, because we want to maybe keep them at arm's length over something. Masks are this universal thing that Star Wars takes very literally from Kylo Ren, even to Ray's introduction in the movie. That's right. To Finn walking away from the stormtrooper life. Mm-hmm. Uh, masks obscure our individuality. They hide us from the world. Um I, I don't know how much time you have, but I in the in the they, book they I, help you sell I, more action figures too when your character puts one on for a scene. For sure, I, I was interviewing this guy named Bishop Omar for my book, and he works with uh, gang members behind bars. He sadly passed away from from COVID, but uh, when I had last spoken to him, we were talking about masks and Star Wars, and he was like, "Yeah, man, it's just like uh, the people I've worked with in prison. You know, these young kids, they want to survive." 
and they join these gangs and they adopt a persona yeah. uh, and then they they go into their cells and they meet with me and that persona is gone they're just children uh, who have killed people and gotten themselves in an impossible situation um, they wear the mask to survive that's exactly what darth vader does it's absolutely what kylo ren did for several years um that made me really sad <laughs> and that was what i wanted to write about in this in, in this book because uh, we all do that especially people walking in, in political circles so how do you how do you break down then the belief system of the jedi versus the sith because it is really a bit too simplistic to merely assign good and evil there mm -hmm. i mean you you write how the jedi order establishes embodies this kind of stoic monkish tradition they view attachments sure. and emotions as forces that invade their members ability to think clearly my parents were both catholic clergy before they married so it really you know resonated with me but the sith just uh, i mean it just seems like it's it saying it's a dark side alone is is almost too simplistic and yet that is the core of of the worldview of these villains it's it's actually a code of ethics that involves darkness yeah i i would say to boil it down to one thing it is that jedi view emotions as passing uh ships they view emotions as a thing that comes that you need to focus on and think about and then let them go sith view emotions as wholly legitimate the feeling that you feel is legitimate and not only that it should be fed it should be indulged and listened to um this is like i, I think a very foundational choice that we we help kids to make um mm -hmm. we teach them you know that the times they will be angry uh and that they need to count to 10 and let it pass then yeah. we forget to do that as we age into adulthood. We fire off tweets, rapid fire, as soon as something gets us hot, on, you know, uh, a little hot under the collar. Um, this is uh, this is something that I think has started to erode our society, uh, being a rapid fire culture. In the book, I, I make my my claim that probably the thing that I find most concerning as it relates to the Jedi and Sith way in our culture is that rush towards anger and i think mm. you see it most in the emotional context uh with our with our young gen z friends um to the left um that i think have embraced sort of a a worldview that emotion is always real <laughs> and that it's not you know kind of like a, a phantom that's trying to trick you uh, i think jedi believe that it is a phantom trying to deceive you and it deserves more attention and you don't think our Gen Z friends on the or our friends on the right have issues with with emotion processing as well? Oh, they're they're angry people. Um, they're angry people and and lashing out and in, in search of control of others. Um, yeah. It's what we all are trying to do in in some way or another. But I do think that our our most radical political movements in this country they mirror each other. Um, mm. They ru they rush hmm. in many ways to mirror and meet the energy of the other. Yeah. And it's just really, it's really shocking to me because I've watched a lot of my libertarian friends over the years react to leftism by becoming incredibly viciously right wing. And I go, oh, okay. So you were only libertarian so far as the other side was playing nice, right. um, which is interesting. But the Star Wars point there is that we often become what we are fighting against or what we say we're fighting against. Um, 
our emotions are not to be trusted. Uh, Sith believe they are. And I think that's yeah. the core difference. Before I let you go, I'd be most remiss if I didn't ask how you feel Disney has done with the franchise between the uh, the five films that have been released and the, the many TV mm -hmm. shows and animations. It's, you know, it's 10 years now. Um, how, how do you feel the track record's going? I think it's going pretty well. You know, I, I don't do batting averages very well, but I would say their batting average is actually pretty similar uh, to George's. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. George did not make agree. Uh, six perfect movies. Uh, in fact, the ones that were really good were the ones where he was a little less involved. And that's mm -hmm. OK. You know, that's <laughs> that's part of that's part of making movies. Um, I would say Disney is is doing really well for the volume that they're putting out. And we're in an era of entertainment where it's a la carte. You can pick what really fits your vibe and watch what you enjoy. Um, Star Wars completists, though, they want to watch everything. And then they get mad when they watch a show that kind of like wasn't made for them. <laughs> You know, like watching <laughs> yeah. like watching a kid's animated series and then being angry that it was childish, you know, um, Star so Wars. One last, one last question. What's the most underrated Star Wars out there? Oh, the most underrated. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I would say I would say the thing that is the least talked about by normies is Star Wars Rebels. Uh, oh, yeah. And Star Star Wars Rebels is now essential viewing to keep up with Dave Dave Filoni and where he's going in the next three years with the Ahsoka show uh, and the inclusion of Grand Admiral Thrawn back into the canon. I think you got to watch Rebels to, to know <laughs> what's going to, on. You really have to, at least the last season. I'm a big Tartakovsky Clone War uh, devotee myself. Um, oh, I, boy. I think it's almost perfect. <laughs> I just love it, love it, love it. Uh, and I, I think I think there's sometimes when you can actually just skip the first two movies and watch that for this your adrenaline rush it's such a pleasure having you on the show uh mr kent the book once again is called how the force can fix the world lessons on life liberty and happiness from a galaxy far far away Stephen, what's the best way for our listeners to follow you and keep up with what you do yeah, I would love if folks came over and joined me on Substack. I have a free newsletter there about Star Wars and philosophy um, and also kind of like self-help type content. It's thisistheway.substack.com. So <laughs> pretty easy. To, this is the way. <laughs> it's a pleasure to geek out with you. Please come back and join us again sometime, okay? Anytime. Really fun. John, it Thank was, you very it was lovely. Much. Thank you. And may the fourth... I sound like Rudy Giuliani when I say that. May the fourth be with you. Uh, have a great evening. This is Sirius XM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. Peace.